0: the yard and maximum security prison, you don't control who you're in there with. And it's a small enclosure. And literally the most relatable way I can sort of communicate what it's like to people is that imagine that you get let into the gorilla cage at the zoo and everything's all right, but you know in every fiber of your being, at any moment, this can just go really badly. And the level of violence is just likely to be so extreme and there's no way to get out you know you're locked in here you can find in this small space with people who are super unpredictable and prone to violence you know it's such a stressful situation
1: holding my head again making my way through crowded thoughts sometimes it's hard to get out of it
2: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Please Blow My Mind with Me, Will Fleming. This is a walk and talk intro. So, yeah, I'm walking while I'm talking. (laughs) Kind of something symbiotic and beautiful about that. And look, weirdly, it's a metaphor for today's podcast with Dr. Paul Wood, um, acclaimed author. He's got a new book out called Mental Fitness. And we talk about that book. But we go much deeper into the insights behind mental and fitness and how these two things come together and look I'm about lots of things coming together I am um, well we talk a little bit in this podcast about the SAS and Paul shares some of his um, experiences with the SAS and one of the huge impacts that I uh, moments of realization from kind of diving into the SAS world myself is their rule of threes right and before I kind of go into that rule of threes there seems to be like measurements or systems that fit together you know like like it's it's hardly ever just one thing there's like a collation of different um, um, bits and pieces that come together and I guess what I'm trying to say is that conversation with somebody or walking and talking whilst you're doing your podcast is a is a merging of things and potentially we're not aware collectively of the importance of this merging and so look I know again I'm guilty self-confessed kind of metaphor geek I really enjoy kind of trying to dig or, or open that curtain and and reveal you know the full force of Of the story of the narrative and this podcast is a is an exploration into that and the conversation with Paul Wood is an example of that so anyway the rule of threes it's quite straightforward really it's three weeks without food three days without water and three minutes without air and that's the rubric of survival that's the measurement of living you have to have those three things working together and it's a beautiful kind of system really so look somewhere along the line here it ties back to this conversation because we have to take tools we have to take ideas we have to take concepts we have to take like like zones of our mind and body and interact them all together and we definitely dive into the how and the why of those of all the stuff that i'm talking about so I won't say any more because Dr. Paul Wood says enough about him, Um, I'd definitely recommend a Google, he's been on the podcast a few times, Um, he's got his story and he's here to share that story and go further beyond in terms of human development, self development and all of the above. So let's jump into this episode with Dr. Paul Wood. Mr. Paul Wood, I want to say thank you brother for always giving me time, being kind, and blowing my mind and for you my friend the audience who listens to this podcast i just want to say you blow my mind enjoy the podcast team
1: bringing out the fire bring on all the lightning because i'm looking for a hero look inside the mirror i find one or oh too hard, pick it up, dust it off. When I fall down 11, I get up 12. Don't need nobody else. Yeah, I can save myself.
2: Right, we're straight into it, Dr. Paulwood. Thank you, man. You got the new book out. Um, we've got this kind of weird relationship, you and I, where it's like once a year we catch up and you seem to have a book like more often than not. And so it's just, it's beautiful. And look, I want to jump straight into it because the name, the name, mental fitness. Okay. And I want to kind of bring this thing up to you that, that we talk about the stuff like it should be logical, like it should Mm -hmm. be easy. I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy. What is it about us, Paul, that gets us, you know, we hear or we get the list, you know, we just need, we know what we need to do then we don't do it. And I'm just trying to work my way through that. You know, your book hopefully will cover that for us.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think the, the challenge is, is we start at the wrong place a lot of the time. Mm. I think that's one thing. I mean, you know, often we have the wrong idea about ourselves and about what's possible. You know, we we create our own limitations. Oh, I wonder if I had a previous best selling book about that called How to Escape from Prison, right? <laughs> but I think... What I'm trying to tackle with this one is that, you know, being a better version of ourselves, having a greater capacity to flourish through adversity, to to take on challenges, to pursue your potential, man, it's small steps that make a big difference over time. Mm -hmm. What do you reckon is the most common derailer when people decide they want to get physically fit again, Well, What do you reckon is the most common mistake? Uh...
2: Common, common mistake. Yeah,
0: come on, bro. It's new like, year. like, like, I've like decided I'm going to get yeah, fit and healthy okay.
2: again. Yep. So, I uh, like, I get all the gear, I, I get out there, I run, I realize how hard it is, and then that's yeah. me done.
0: Bro, I go, I go, exactly. I go too large, too quick. Whereas, actually, this stuff is about just small, incremental improvement over time. Mm. One of the things, like, I was at a workshop earlier today before being here, and I, I, this was spend most of my time doing, right? Speaking at conferences, running workshops. And everyone's heard of stretch goals. You know, oh, give yourself a good hard stretch goal. And that's great. That stuff's meaningful. But what I always encourage people to do is go small. Walk out of here with one small thing that feels like it's not enough mm. because then you'll actually be able to do it and you won't have to need any additional psychological resources to be motivated to do it because it's small enough to get you started. And then once you've got started, that's when you build on it over time. Mm. And what I always say to people is, you know, shrink the goal, make it like a 21 day challenge for yourself. One of the things I talk about in the book is that on average it takes 21 days to notice the impact of something new you're doing. If after 21 days you go, hey, this is really adding value to my life, then you wanna focus on 90 days because in 90 days you create that new habit. Once you've created the habit, then you can worry about upping the intensity So one of the things that I hope people will do from this book is they'll actually just choose one small thing to prioritize and focus on that, again, doesn't require a whole heap of extra motivation or effort, but is something that they can get value from and build on over time. And, you know, I I think going back to that idea around some of the psychological barriers that stop us going, stop us getting started, that's where the whole name from the book came from, right? Because, you know, mental fitness... Attempts to communicate that idea that this is something developable. It's something you need to work on and invest in. And the work you do now is an investment in your future state. And and can I just tell you the origin story of how this book title came up? Because I think this is interesting and relevant to people too. So I was fortunate enough a few years back now to have been invited to take part in the fifth anniversary of the Army Leadership Development Center down in Burnham. And as a result of that, I got to go along to the, the, the like celebration dinner. I did like a keynote during the day, and then I went to the dinner. And oh my gosh, the defense force has its own subculture, that's for sure, in terms of different strange things that go on. Like, you know, the Navy people only like clap with their left hand hidden on a table. They don't clap like this. And apparently that's because when Lord Nelson lost his hand, and I think it was the Battle of Trafalgar a couple hundred years ago. From that point forward, everyone in the Navy claps like this on the table because Lord Nelson didn't have two hands to clap. There's all kinds of cool stuff. Anyway, that's, that's an aside. Uh, but I was having a conversation there with some of the people who are in charge of facilitating leadership within the Defence Force. That's what it was about. And one of them, a, a, a guy, Shannon, and I were talking and a guy, Ainsley, as well, and, and a good mate of mine, Captain steve And we were talking about how difficult it is to get some of the you know, guys who are a bit harder to convince to do the things that are actually useful to them in terms of their own resilience, their own well being. And uh, Shannon actually mentioned at that point. Oh, well, if we just called it mental fitness, you know, it would clearly communicate this to people. And, and if they just thought of stress as a mental workout, then it would so more clearly communicate to them what this is about and how it works. And if you think about that, that concept of a workout, right? Like, you know, mate, you know, you've been on a massive journey yourself. When you do hard things, but you recognize that there's value in it for you, that the hardship you endure now is an investment in your future self, you persevere, you do it. Mm. But imagine if you can't see any benefit in it. So that's what stress is like, right? Stress is how we get more resilient. It's how we get more mentally tough. It's how we know we're doing something meaningful with our lives, but we get these messages in society that, oh, you're not supposed to feel stressed. You're supposed to feel happy all the time. So the second we feel stress, we start stressing about stress. We start worrying about worry. Instead of going, ah, this is what growth feels like. This is actually a sign I'm doing something meaningful. This is a sign that I'm actually engaging in life. I'm off the spectator seats. And as a result of this, I will actually get more resilient and mentally tough going forward. Imagine, bro, you just found yourself in an ice bath or you just found yourself working out and there was no discernible benefit for you that you're that you aware of, you would immediately try to just get out of it. You would just see it as a threat that you had to just try and remove yourself from. So part of the idea of this origin story, you know, is that idea of, hey, if I just think of this as an investment in my future state, and where actually there's satisfaction and embracing the challenge, mm-hmm. and where actually experiencing the challenge is how I know that I'm doing something meaningful that'll make me stronger in the future, that that's such a useful idea. Now, of course, there's other parallels with physical fitness and fatigue and injury here too well. You know, if you go too large too quick, you know, you risk derailing yourself or injuring yourself. If I go and jump under the squat rack and put 200 kgs on, I'm going to kill myself. It's about starting in a place that enables you to actually come back into build incrementally over time and to recover sufficiently in between to get that growth. Because, of course, you don't grow while you're experiencing stress. Like, you don't grow while you're in the gym. You grow during the recovery period afterwards. All makes sense, Mm -hmm. my bro?
2: Oh, absolutely. And it's kind of like, it's beautiful, you know, It's because you've got this little narrative that's running with it. I think that's the thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around, is logic doesn't seem to be enough. It's clearly not enough. People aren't able to connect themselves to it. It's why I've kind of started to think like, Man, was it? Were we all too quick to throw out like things like spirituality and religion? You know, because what were the intertwining stories? When you talk like this, there's almost this um, um, metaphorical analogy. You know, like yeah, nice. You know, and, it's and a really,
0: and, yeah. Yeah, go on. Sorry. No, no, you go. I was just going to say that's such an interesting one. You know, it's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Like, you know, as part of writing this book, I had the distinct Uh, honor and privilege of being able to watch the SAS do some of their training and get to work with the defense force psychs and special forces psych and that sort of stuff and it was interesting because I was asking them hey so how can you predict who's going to succeed and who's not because oh my gosh you know that is a serious filtering process by the time you get to SAS selection you've already gone through a number of filters and the SAS selection is an exercise in being able to pass through misery and discomfort right you know, no matter where you're at, that's what it's about. And what what the consistent theme I was told was that you can't predict who's going to make it based on size, colour, shape, anything like that. The single most common denominator in terms of who's going to make it through is that they have a really clear sense of why this is important to them. That sense of something bigger than themselves, this real draw factor in terms of why this is important to who they are and who they're supposed to be. And I would say that, you know, that spirituality, for a lot of people that sort of has historically provided that sense of why, but also that narrative around adversity and around challenge. I'm not a religious person myself. I don't, have a, I don't have a dog in this fight, okay? But I know, for example, my namesake, Paul, which is a good Christian name, was based off the story of Saul, who was the persecutor. He was a Roman persecutor of Christians. And then he had the Damascus experience, and he saw the light. And he went through many trials and tribulations. And, you know, that that was a standard part of the narrative for so many world religions, right? And for so many ideas of spirituality. And part of it communicates that life is struggle and that's okay. That's the path. But also it's about sense of connection with something bigger than yourself. And why this is really interesting to me too is because of my work with the public sector primarily, you know, I've had the real privilege of getting to work with and get some mentoring from people who are really awesome uh, cultural advisors in terms of the Māori perspective and worldview. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas that I don't tap into, into this book, but is a really important one, because I do talk about meaning and that sense connection to something yeah. greater than yourself. And from a Māori perspective, you know, that's often thought of in terms of wairua, which is often translated as to spirituality. Now, there's a really cool model called te whare tapa wha, which means the four walls of the house. And it originates with Sir Mason Jury, but it's a concept which relates to the multi-world worldview around health and wellbeing, you know, the mental fitness, the flourishing, the stuff we're talking about. And while we often think of wairoa as sort of spirituality, there's different ways to conceptualise that. And one of the people who gave me some mentoring, you know, did a, a really awesome job of talking to me about what this actually means uh, in terms of a broader perspective. It's about that sense of connection that goes beyond yourself, and again, that can be seen as spirituality. It can be via religion, but it can also be via other things. And if you break the word down, Y is water in rio, and rua is tahirua, is two. So it actually means like two waters. And the way they told me to think about it is think about the double helix well. That is the two waters that flow within you that's based on all of the ancestral contributions that sit behind you, bro. So that when you sit there as an individual, you're not just this, this you, you know, soul entity at this point in time, you reflect this sense of connection with all of your ancestors who sit behind you. So when I sit here and when I engage with you, and you know, I'm aware of your Cook Island ancestry as well. And again, my wife's, you know, half Cook Island Maori. So, you know, that's meaningful for me there too. And when I sit here and when I engage with you, it's not just will. It's this whole lineage of ancestors that sit behind you that contribute to you being here. And those two waters, that double helix, that's the contributions from both sides in that respect. So perhaps for some people, it's not spirituality how we often think of it, but it's just that recognition and connection with something beyond yourself. And an interesting thing I'd say here too, well, is that thanks to some of the work I do in the youth justice space, where I have, again, the privilege of working with people who are there at the coalface, and, you know, just interacting with them. Really, that's the work I do. Uh, but also being involved in trying to help people turn their lives around who are in prison. One of the things we know when it comes to Māori and Pacifica, who are massively overrepresented in those environments. And by the way, this is just an aside, but I think we make the mistake there that what we do is we often attribute to ethnicity things that are actually poverty-related issues. Yep. For my mind, there is 100% systemic racism in the justice system. That's, that's not a question. You look at the data. There's peer-reviewed studies around this. But also, it's just that Māori and Pacific are unfortunately massively overrepresented in terms of poverty. And often you see a lot more of, of um, brown faces in prison, not only because of systemic racism, but because of the poverty issue. But a lot of the time, it's easy for us to go, oh, this is a Māori or a Pacific issue, rather than go, hey, this is a poor people issue. And we yeah. need to be doing something about poverty, because it's mm. a way harder issue to tackle. Anyway, mm. that's an aside.
2: No. Yep.
0: What I was going to say is what we know when it comes to Māori and Pacifica is we know that it's really important for them to have a sense of connection with iwi, with family, you know, with whenua, all of this sort of stuff. But I'll tell you this right now, I think that's equally true of Pākehā or of anyone else. Mm. For me, the distinction is, is that Pākehā and other people who come from heavily industrialized areas have had many hundreds of years to be separated and disconnected from their sense of tribe, of clan, of iwi. And so we've lost sight of that, whereas Māori and Pacifica are closer to what is actually a healthier state to be in in mm-hmm. terms of flourishing and well-being. So again, I, I think it's an interesting idea. And it, look, I, I don't know that for sure, but that's my intuition around it based on what I know of how damaging it is to not have that greater sense of connection, mm-hmm. You know, to not sort of have that wider in terms of your own lens, in terms of your own origins. Mm-hmm. Anyway, man, that's just no, that's no, me yarn. No,
2: no, I love the yarn because I get kind of lost in it too. And look, there's many streams, Paul. Like one of the things I did is is you can only talk to like 300 people like yourself and many more amazing people without it, like leaving you sitting there thinking, what, what do I do with all of this? Right. And so I kind of did stock take. And at the beginning of the year, I um, went back to university and I'm doing my master's in um, sport, exercise and health, but with a focus on kind of Pacific ancestral breathing in a way to, I think it's a lost pillar in the Pacific realm. Maori have it through, you know, the hongi and the practices, Mm. but there's, you have to go real far back to find talk of um, breathing specifically as a, a, a measure of health. So when we're sitting here talking, you're talking about ancestry and interweaving, and, and it's really kind of hitting me because I'm like, you know, far out. It makes sense to have a strong mental fitness because guess what? That's going to help you when uh, you encounter huge chronic stress, which is what I actually think. Um, many of Māori and Pacific have when you get to a level of um, incarceration, right? I bet you if you measured um, heart oh. rate and blood pressure, it would be signals of chronic stress. So not the good stress you're talking about, the one that you know, no. activates your mind-body and keeps it healthy, the one that gives you an impending sense of doom. And yeah. my question what? is, what do you do
0: about that? And yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. I think the challenge with that one is that there's no recovery. It's Mm. relentless. Yes. So if you're in a situation of poverty where, you know, here's the irony, right, is that actually, if you live in a third world country where you are focused day to day on fundamental survival needs, you are way less likely to suffer from depression and anxiety-related issues, Mm. from suicide. Suicide is just about unheard of in the developing world compared to the the so-called first world, the industrialized nations. And part of the reason for that is our brain has evolved to deal with those acute kind of stresses where it immediately focuses you on something you need to do to resolve the stress. You do that relief for that period. Next day, we're at it again. But the problem is, is in the industrialized nations where we have a certain system and a certain level of setup where people aren't as focused on those immediate needs, but perhaps they don't get their base level needs met and they have greater expectations based on what they see from other people, we create this environment where it's more likely we're going to have those sorts of issues. And by the time you know, people end up in prison, prison is a rough place, man, prisoners. It's interesting, eh? Because like, um, you know, we're a really adaptive species and you adapt to whatever your external circumstances are. Like, check this out. One of the things I talk about in my book that's really interesting is this research that they did in Canada, where they tracked people who had either won the lottery or who had become paraplegics. And they tracked a number of people over the course of a year. And what they found is whether you won the lottery or became a paraplegic, within the space of a year, you were basically back to your base rate level of well-being and happiness before that happened. So getting a whole lot of money or losing the use of your legs didn't actually radically impact your general sense of well-being. And part of that is because people's expectations shift according to their circumstances, right? But an interesting idea there is that often we, even in an environment like the prison, we can sort of adapt and get used to it to a certain extent. But I suppose the differences in the prison environment is there is ongoing and constant threat and that's one of the challenges one of the things we know from that research is that one of the things that does radically reduce your general well-being is chronic pain if you end up in a situation where you have chronic pain that is massively going to impact on your day-to-day well-being and i would say prison can be the same in the sense that it's a chronic threat environment now unfortunately the sad thing is is that's not an unusual circumstance for a lot of people who end up in prison a lot of those people are people who have grown up in households where domestic violence was rife where violence was the norm and then they end up in prison. But you know, for me, as someone who's you know, over 14 years out of prison now, oh my gosh, man, I'm so grateful I don't live in that environment anymore, even though that was my norm. I uh, had the opportunity to be an expert witness recently uh, for a, a murder trial for an inmate. Uh, a, a, an inmate got murdered in Piriamarimu, now Maximum Security Prison. And a number of people were arrested for that. The person who ended up pleading guilty and getting convicted for the murder was the right person. Uh, You know, like, even in the prison environment, we have a lot of people who live a life of violence. There are some people who are real psychopaths and really stand out in terms of their level of dangerousness. And to give you an idea, the guy who committed the murder, you know, here's a guy, his nickname in prison is JFK. And that stands for just fucking crazy. And I'll tell you what: to have that nickname and maximum security, to stand out in that sense, you need to be a certain level of just insanity, right? But anyway, another three young guys got arrested as well and charged, who were in the yard at the same time, you know, and got into a fight with another person who was in there, another gang member. And you look at these guys, and you're just like, it's heartbreaking. Like the person I was called to give expert testimony on behalf of, and it related to fight, flight and freeze, our stress response in, in highly stressful circumstances. You know, he's a young guy who's 20 at the time of this offense, who's been in prison since he's 16 and who's just followed that whole pathway which was also predictable. But what I was gonna say there is, as part of the preparation for that, I had to watch the CCTV footage of this offense and oh man, honestly, It's talk about something to reawaken post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. I was definitely having flashbacks and nightmares for a while after watching that one. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I I was so attentive to is how the yard in maximum security prison, you don't control who you're in there with. And it's a small enclosure. And literally the most relatable way I can sort of communicate what it's like to people is that imagine that you get let into the gorilla cage at the zoo And everything's all right, but you know, in every fiber of your being, at any moment, this can just go really badly. And the level of violence is just likely to be so extreme and there's no way to get out. You know, you're locked in here, you can find in this small space with people who are super unpredictable and prone to violence. You know, it's such a stressful situation And, you know, I I do really think being exposed to that level of stress on a regular basis, there's no doubt about the long-term impact it has. And we know this from research into people who have been in war zones or who've been exposed to combat for long periods. And prison really is like that.
2: Paul, why, I mean, look, why is it like that? If the research, Even if you think at its most base form, how can you expect people to be in an extra state of fight flight and come out and be able to operate at a, let's just say a mild fight flight that we're all rolling around with. So that's what I kind of can't grapple is that what external forces make it like that the research says, or if just like you think about being a parent, if the job is for these places to say, you stay here till you're ready to go okay, it's like being grounded. You learn your lesson, but it's not like you shouldn't be in that constant state. It must be something like people who made the call, they don't know. (laughs) They don't know.
0: Check this out, though. Man, it goes back to the original point you made at the beginning of this, and this is, you know, we don't operate rationally. Mm. And this is what we know from economics and behavioral economics. People are not rational decision-making machines. We're fundamentally emotional. And unfortunately, the Department of Corrections, the whole justice system, has been a political football for many, many years, where, you know, people's emotional and understandable emotional desire to punish those who they feel threatened by, who they feel wronged by, overrides rational considerations around what actually works. You know, we've known this for years, even people who have been involved in governments that have made some of the policies that have kept us this way have this. i mean the famous quote from bill english was you know that prison is a moral and fiscal failure don't even worry about the humanitarian perspective it's a terrible waste of money and i tell you what here's a sobering thought we spend more every year on prisons than we've spent in the entirety of our treaty settlements if you add up all the treaty settlements it doesn't add up to how much we spend on prisons every year I mean, that's insane, that should be sobering, right? It just doesn't work. But again, it's been an emotional thing. And, you know, I think the challenge there is that, you know, sometimes we don't have that capacity to make better decisions when we are emotional, you know, when we are struggling. And that's part of what this book is about, is about going, well, how can I make sure I got the fuel in the tank to be the version of myself? I'd want my reputation to reflect who can flourish through whatever circumstances I find myself in, but also who better understands the different areas that I can focus on in order to really get the highest levels of flourishing and well-being possible. Mm -hmm. You know, often stuff like this, world is focused on a deficiency. If you're really struggling with stress, here's a a book to help you. This will help you in those circumstances, but it's not for those people only. Mm -hmm. If you want to pursue your A game, this is a book that will help you. So I wanted to write it that would in a way that would assist the human experience and flourishing that wouldn't just be like some kind of deficiency focused thing.
2: Mm. Paul, did you have a book like that? Like, why did you come out of prison on a pathway to, you know, wherever you've gone? You know, I don't know if I've ever asked you that. What was, is it luck?
0: A lot of it is, you know, you need all of the ingredients to come together. You know, you need motivation. You also need capability. You know, you need opportunity. And that's Mm. a big one. I was more fortunate than most in terms of the opportunity I had, right? In the sense that I had a father who was prepared to pay for my study out of his pension. And I had other people as well in my life, by the way, who I could look to as examples of people who lived better lives, and as a result of that, you know, my, my perspective was broader around what was possible. Whereas a lot of people who end up in prison have lived very small lives and don't really have those points of reference that I had. Right. One of the cool things I'm involved in these days is uh, a, a program called Take Two. And what it is, is it's a social enterprise running out of Woody Prison out of South Auckland at the moment. And it provides a select group of inmates with the opportunity to get computer programming training and also for some of them to get a real pathway out to internships into some awesome organizations like Russian Spark. And what it is, is it's taking away the good fortune I had and trying to uh, create those opportunities for other people who have the same will and the same capability as I did. And it's so cool being involved in that, it's meaningful for me. I just like going back into the prison, but I I pop them when I'm up there. I was up there uh, earlier this week, having some one-on-ones with some of the guys, and to give you an example eh, of the sort of difference stuff can make around that mindset and the rest of it so all of the guys who are on the program and it's just at the men's prison at the moment have all got copies of my book my first and now my second book and i was talking to this guy who's a, who's a black power member who's on the program and i just give you that context because the conversation was around him and the mungal mob now the mungal mob black power are the historical gangs in new zealand massive rivalry you know, to give you some context, the mongrel mob refer to themselves as dogs and they make barking noises at each other in prison, this sort of stuff. And the Black Power refer to the the mongrel mob as dog shits. That's sort of like the derogatory term they use for them. And i just give you this so you understand the context of, of the story that this guy told me. He was talking to me about how he's been going on the course and that, but also how he's aware that his own biggest barrier is still his own mindset and his ideas and he was saying that he was walking up and down in the yard, and he saw this guy knock out this dog shit, and the dog shit was lying flat on his back, unconscious in the yard, and everyone was just carrying on, walking up and down the yard. No one's paying any attention to it, and he thought this is exactly what Paul was talking about in his book, that in prison, we have these attitudes towards violence that are really dysfunctional and unhelpful, and so he goes up to this guy, to this mongrel mob member who's unconscious on the ground and he turns him on his side and puts him in the recovery position. And some of the other black power guys in the yard yell out to him, bro, that's a dog shit. What are you doing? Yet he chose, based on that realization, to do something which was a humanitarian thing to do, but which also brought him into conflict with his own gang members. You know, the challenges is It's easy for us out here to go, you know, all these people have the same opportunities and it's all personal responsibility. But if you've grown up in a small world where you have certain ideas and certain things reinforced for you, it really puts puts a lid on your own experience of the world. And I use that term lid because, you know, there's an interesting piece of research that was done that builds on earlier research I mentioned in my book around learned helplessness where this researcher gets a whole bunch of fleas and he puts them in a jar and he puts the lid on the top of the jar. Now, fleas are amazingly powerful creatures, right? If you had the jumping capacity of a flea wheel, you'd be able to jump two kilometers into the air, okay? Check that out. That's, that's how high they can jump relative to their size. So he puts the lid on the jar and the fleas jump and bang their head on the top of the lid. So pretty quickly what they start to do is to jump lower so they don't hit the lid. Take the lid off, they keep jumping lower, way lower than their potential. If you've grown up in an environment where there have been lids, you know, on you in terms of expectations, in terms of role models, all of those things, you know, you only strive as high as your point of reference. And so I think that's a key thing is that, you know, we don't all start with that same opportunity. We don't all start with that same encouragement and exposure. We start with different levels of lid on the jar.
2: Well, a bit fascinated with, you just mentioned recovery position and yeah. at its core, a human wasn't talking about politics or gang. It was, were they, could they potentially die, right? So the the, the gang member lying on the floor and the, and the most humane thing was the recovery position. So I was being trying to kind of work through this thing this week. I do a lot of filming and podcasting and blah, blah, blah with lots of people and, I found myself in front of pharmacists, right? And they were talking about SSRIs and the role they play, the antidepressants and all this kind of stuff. And look, I'll just talk and I don't mean to put you outside of or inside of areas that you want to talk about, but just hear me out for a sec. They were talking about finding the right one to give you the right amount of dopamine serotonin and to balance things out so that you are not having the finger on the trigger the whole time, metaphorically. And I said, well, why? You know, and oh well, you make um, worse decisions if all these other influences are are playing with your decision making. And so, my kind of question to them was, okay, so I'm taking this stuff so that I can have what the best worst decision I can make. But is it enough? Is it enough if I'm not actually working on the reason why I'm having extra whatever thoughts? So is it something like a recovery position? Is that something what mental fitness or mental health is doing? And I guess I'll try and tie it back. So we want to be fitter, so what? The body doesn't have to work as hard. If we cut our finger, we need to protect it so it can heal itself. Am am I right, Paul, that a, a place to aim is that if it's SSRI or better mental fitness or whatever it is, We're just trying to, like, give the body a chance to be in a recovery position, the body and mind. Is that fair? Or or is there a step further that you need to actually fix what's happening there?
0: 100%, man. I mean, this is the problem is so much of our medical model these days is geared towards treating symptoms, Rather than actually building the health that enables you to avoid having such issues in the first place, mm. and like I say, that's one of the things as well. I'm trying to communicate with that idea of mental fitness is you do this stuff proactively, so that you're less likely to be impacted. You know, there's a metaphor, the sort of um, uh, stress vulnerability model, and a metaphor that's used in there. Uh, by a mate of mine who's Dr. Elliot Bill from Otago University. And he's, he's a brilliant guy. And he talks about, you know, stress and vulnerability being like this. You're standing in the ocean. And let's say that you and I are standing in the ocean. And how tall are you, Will? Uh, one nine six. One nine six. Okay. Well, I'm So you've got 10 centimeters on me. Okay, mate? So if we're standing in the ocean and a wave which is one meter comes at us, that's no problem for either of us. But if we're standing in the ocean and a wave comes that's 180 centimeters, you know, that's gonna hit me and cover my mouth if I'm just standing there, whereas you'll still be okay. We don't all start at the same place in terms of stress and the risk of it, but check it out, all of us can benefit from learning how to swim, right? Because if a three meter wave comes, mate, that 10 centimeters ain't gonna save you. It's gonna be around the skills that you have learned and you have developed, which enable you to better cope with stress and be less vulnerable to it. So the problem is at the moment, is what we're doing, we're addressing a lot of symptoms without going, actually, how can we give people the skills which are gonna build their capacity to cope, reduce their vulnerability? And check this out, you can extend the metaphor further. How about if you're swimming between the flags and you have support people who can also help you out? And again, that's where we go back to this connection we were talking about earlier, which is still so really obvious to Māori and Pacifica, but we've kind of lost sight of in terms of the, the whole rugged individualism of the West and the nuclear family, but it's equally true for all of us. We're all the same social species. You know, it's, it's a really key idea. And I think as well, that we can look at this in terms of the COVID situation. So I'm lucky enough to be married into a family of some people who are really onto it in terms of you know, general health and fitness and exercise and all of that. And my father-in-law, for example, and my wife always going on about why aren't people having the information around how they can build their immune systems, how they can be healthier and therefore less likely to be negatively impacted by COVID should they get it. Instead, it's all around you know the preventative measures like social distancing and the rest of it. But I haven't seen any information out there around how do you actually build your immune system? How can you be healthier in terms of diet, in terms of nutrition and the rest of it? Because what happens is, as soon as anyone goes in that direction, then you know they start to get accused of being associated with conspiracy theorists and all this other stuff, right? Um, but again, it's this tendency to want to address symptoms rather than underlying causes. And mm. don't get me wrong, you know, if you're someone who has suicidal thoughts or otherwise, or who's really suffering, sometimes it's a triage situation where you need those medications just Mm. to help stem the flow Mm. to get you back to where you need to be. But it's definitely not the solution. Mm. It's not enough. It's only about triaging those immediate symptoms. Mm. So that's my position. And look, I'm not, you know, I'm not a pharmacist. I'm not a, Medical doctor, but that's my lens on it, my opinion on it, based on my knowledge and understanding.
2: It's funny how we have to preface it with that stuff. But you are a father, a husband, a member of society, someone who knows a lot, who went off and got a doctorate. You know, it's like it's okay too to say, "Hey, man, these are my thoughts," you know. And I, I I just find it strange in society. We've got to kind of say, "But you know." yeah, I don't know what I'm really mean, Paul. We're gonna kind of wrap it up, but I wonder if I could okay. test something with you. So uh, Far part, light, part of this um, study journey is I have to do this academic writing, and I hate it so much. I hate it because I haven't grappled with it enough and made it my friend yet. I'm still on that journey, so I've been looking for advice here and there on how to how to want to write. I want to talk. I want to do this, but uh-uh, it's back to the drawing board for me. So. I've decided on, I'll try this thing where uh, I pinched it off Jerry Seinfeld, you know, probably legendary writer. So one day yeah. I'll write and I'll be very kind to myself. And the next day I'll come back as uh, as an SAS person, you know, and I'll just like, so could I want to read you something I wrote, just very short. And can you play the SAS person? All right. So okay. Relentless really... pursuit
0: of excellence is yes, what you're yes, talking yeah. about you yeah, there. That if SAS you like value. Yeah. You can on. Tap
2: on the table. Okay. So this is a piece I wrote just around like, uh, look, we talk about suicide and culture. And mm. my question is, well, why is it better to live? And I know that seems obvious, but if you actually ask that, I don't think people have really thought through that because you really need to think through it. If you're gonna pursue a life which is full of good shit and bad shit, you got to make a call. And so I attempted to kind of like, here we go. So um, it's very metaphorical, but anyway, read it to you, and then you just brutalize it. Okay. Fire so limer, man. it was a it was a long run, a hard run. Much of it uphill, but I'm still here. Twists and turns through night and day, a century and a week in a blink. When I look back, what should I say? A good life lived. Who's to say, but I'm still here. Many memories of past, some good, some bad. That one time though, I'll tell you about it another time because I'm still here. Asked to give advice, but that's not my job. The answer is clear because you are still here. So there's something about you got to be here. And I think I just never hear that, you know? I never hear that anywhere that it's worth being here. And so, anyway, what, what are your first thoughts if you're the SAS guy?
0: Well, a few of them. You know, one of them is that, that idea that it so goes back to this, this notion that it's not supposed to be easy. Again, expectations, right? If you think it's supposed to be easy, you're never going to deal with the challenge. Whereas if you can look at the challenge that you're talking about, then when I hear that, I I hear a sense of satisfaction. Embracing the challenge, stress is a challenge to be embraced, not a threat to be avoided. I'm still here. I've done it. I've conquered it. I, I hear that even if I'm here today. And that's part of that sense of why. It's that for me, when I hear that, it comes to mind that Nietzschean quote, if you have a why, you can bear almost any how. You need to have a clear sense of why. But if that's tacked to things like, our oh, financial success or attractiveness or these, then you're setting yourself up for doom and disappointment, right? What I hear and what you said is that the struggle's real and that's okay. That is the journey and the sense of satisfaction that comes with embracing that challenge rather than avoiding it. So that's what I hear. I've got, no, I've got nothing critical to say there. I total what you said, man, I support it. <laughs> Right. works You've for me, taught- but then as my wife would say, I'm also <laughs> flowery and verbose. Yeah. So perhaps I'm not the best judge, my bro.
2: Well, that's why I always ask you to be on the podcast because you're always <laughs> kind to me. You know, I kind of, you know, and there's plenty of people like you who return guests and it's just, it's good shit because I feel like that um, you're kind to me, but you also get to explore your ideas and promote your ideas. And they're awesome ideas because, you know, I I don't want to, I don't want to actually government in that to drive our why that's not their job you know they might support me with my how, but it's mm. our job and so i like the feeling that um you know your books and your um, voice gets spread around and that's good shit because we just times that by infinity and then we'll make sense of it dr paul wood where can people get your new book they want to they want it can they listen to it this time around
0: Yeah, 100%. Both books are available on uh, Audible. Uh, Also as well, you can get it on Kindle and you should be able to get it at any bookstore, Uh, good or bad. I'm joking, obviously (laughs) they're all good. But yeah, shouldn't be a problem. And if you're overseas, if you're not in New Zealand, then you should be able to order it via Mighty Ape. Mighty Ape, there will send it to anywhere. As far as I'm I'm aware, I had someone from California telling me they just got their copy. So it shouldn't be too hard. (laughs)
2: and what's next for you brother do you like rest for a while after releasing a book or are you just on Mm. the train back on the dr paul wood train well
0: yeah i mean i'm definitely already thinking while i was doing this one i'm already thinking of potential ideas for the next one Mm. It's, it's a satisfying thing to do it's a great way to scale up impact but here's something actually i think i want to mention as well that might be relevant for some of your listeners you know like a lot of people who listen to this type of podcast are people who are striving for their own potential, people who are a bit driven, people who are go-getters. And what we talk about in neuroscience is that people like that are often what's called dopamine dominant. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter associated with motivation and movement, you know, having a bit of ants in your pants, associated with what I call the chronic dissatisfaction of the overachiever, the person who's always focused on what's next. One of the things that we know is if you're someone listening to this, watching this, who relates to that, then a really useful thing to do that I deliberately do in my life as well is make sure you actually savor your achievements and the things that you do. Don't just move straight on to focusing on to the next goal. Actually have visual reminders or other things in your life that enable you to prolong the emotional, psychological benefit you get from your achievements. Don't waste that opportunity. It won't come naturally to you, but it's something you need to be disciplined about to really get the most out of it. So I'm actually savoring this at the moment. Well, I've got ideas, but I'm savoring this at the moment.
2: Awesome, man. You better start growing that beard. You're that wise guy. <laughs> hey, just a huge beard and some thinking pictures. Dr. Paul, Wood, well, thank you as always. Thank you. Seriously, man. It's been a blast getting to know you in our one time a year conversation. And long may it continue. But for now, we'll wrap up. And I just want to thank you again, brother.
0: Awesome. Appreciate it, man.
1: Holding my head again, making my way through crowded thoughts Sometimes it's hard to get out of it Broke my heart in the dark, I was just trying to feel something Falling asleep to the sound of it Always used to lay you clean up the messes down on my knees. Thought I couldn't stand up on my own. Turns out sometimes he's stronger alone. Bringing out the fight, yeah, bring on all the lightning. Cause I'm looking for a hero. Look inside the mirror, I find one. Oh, Gary yeah, the hurt It's too hard. Pick it up, dust it off. When I fall down eleven, I get up twelve. Don't need nobody else. Yeah, I can save myself. Got burned, but I learned. Our scars make us who we are. Now I'm ten feet tall over my demons. Remind me. Got me like myself, yeah. I love me without any help. I'm the best thing to believe in. So I'm <laughs> heavy as a season, and the sun is always right behind the storm.